Right. I wanted I to be, interrupt. well, please, <laughs> I really wanted to be a conversation. I think it's going okay. to be more engaging as a conversation. Okay? I understand, but I try not to interrupt off. If it's really pressing, I'll go like this. Well, <laughs> please do. Like, it, I'm telling you, it'll be better if we have a conversation okay. like we're having right now. Like, this is great. <laughs> Fantastic. Hey, everyone, and welcome to Chef AJ Live. I'm your host, Chef AJ, and this is where I introduce you to amazing people like you who are doing great things in the world that I think you should know about. My guest today was a very popular expert on last year's the GI Health Summit. He did two presentations, one on GI Health, but one, he did a cooking demo because he also is a trained chef who went to culinary school. If that's not enough, he is triple board certified. Probably soon he's going to get another one in lifestyle medicine. And he is from my hometown of Chicago, Illinois, where he practices medicine, specifically gastroenterology. But today he's here to talk about whether or not our diet influences our risk of cancer. Please welcome Dr. Ed McDonald. Chef AJ, thanks so much for having me on the show. I really appreciate being here. It's always Good seeing you. It's good to have a good conversation with you. You're definitely one of my favorite people to talk to and support, especially in the world of social media and everything. So I, I love everything that you've been doing. I'm also honored to be here. Well, thank you. You know, I got this shirt just for you. I literally just ordered it. It says stop eating crap and eat veggies. Wow. You know, that, that sounds like something I put on my prescription pads. <laughs> <laughs> like I literally write that out. <laughs> that is so great. So I, I feel honored to come on the show and talk about diet and cancer. And, uh, you know, one of the reasons why I like talking about diet and cancer, I'm a gastroenterologist. OK, so I, I uh, unfortunately diagnose a significant number of people with cancers, various types of cancers. OK, so as a, as a GI doctor, I mean, obviously, I come in contact with colon cancer, but I also see people with liver cancer, with stomach cancer, cancer of the esophagus, pancreatic cancer. And then since I specialize in nutrition, I see a lot of people with all different types of cancers that don't necessarily involve the GI tract, but still can impact their ability to eat. Okay. So we're talking about head and neck cancer. Uh, when people have cancer within their mouth, uh, they may not necessarily be able to swallow. And a gastroenterologist like myself has to put in a feeding tube. Or uh, even if someone has, say, uterine cancer or cervical cancer or ovarian cancer, where the cancer may have spread to their um, the inside of their abdomen and it prevents their intestines from uh, moving properly and people can get bowel obstructions from cancers. So now I have to come in again and uh, maybe put in a feeding tube or put pa patients on IV nutrition so they can get some calories because their bowels are not working properly because of cancer. Um, so it, it's something that unfortunately I experience as a gastroenterologist, although I'm not a cancer specialist, but I see a lot of patients with cancer. So, you know, for me, my goal, I don't want to see people end up on IV nutrition and I don't want to have to be in a position where I'm placing feeding tubes. I want to be able to prevent this from happening. And I do think that diet um, is an important uh, factor to consider in terms of decreasing our risk for developing certain cancers. So I really want to get into it. Okay. You got it. All right. Uh, so does diet influence our cancer risk? I mean, just an introduction already insinuated that it does, uh, but let's 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 go a little deeper. Okay, so before we get into diet and cancer, what are risk factors in general besides diet for cancer? Because there's a lot of risk out there. Diet is just one of them, um, but I think in general we should be aware of a lot of different risks so we can do our best to decrease our risk of developing cancer. Uh, so cigarettes. Okay, cigarettes are probably one of the biggest risk factors for cancer. And I think for folks who are trying to live a healthier life, I applaud people for thinking about how diet can impact their health. 
um, especially folks who are thinking about moving more on the plant-based side of things. Um, but even still, I'm seeing a lot of vegan um, cigarette smokers. <laughs> and I don't know if the vegan diet can outweigh the negative impact of the cigarette smoke. Okay. And I wouldn't want to put it to the test. Uh, probably have some benefit, but there's no study that I can quote to say that is 100% protective against the negative impact of cigarettes or cigars. Uh, and I see recently the FDA is talking about uh, banning menthol, uh, mentholated cigarettes, which I think is a, a great thing. Okay. And I think it's a great thing for a lot of different reasons. Yeah, I'd love uh, to know why menthol is, is, is considered better or if it is considered better, because I, I'm, I'm ashamed to admit this, but I smoked in my teens when I was anorexic and I, I thought menthol was healthier it's from a plant. Well, uh, so mint in general um, can have positive impacts. Okay. So, you know, as a gastroenterologist, I use a lot of peppermint oil for patients. So it's a natural antispasmodic. It relaxes the bowels and helps a lot of people with irritable bowel syndrome. And mint is very soothing. Uh, so, you know, I'm from the generation where if I got sick, if I had a cough, my mom would lather me up with Vicks Vapor Rub which basically had menthol. Um, so the menthol kind of decreases uh, coughing. It's a natural anti-tussive, okay, anti-cough medication. So the reason why it's in cigarettes, um, the menthol kind of soothes the lungs, okay? So people don't cough as much when they're smoking cigarettes with menthol. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why it could be a little bit more dangerous, okay? Because it actually makes cigarettes more appealing than what they naturally are. Uh, so it's easier for someone who's not accustomed to smoking to uh, start with mentholated cigarettes uh, because you don't cough as much. Uh, they're smoother. Um, now, another thing that's interesting, uh, they did a study uh, looking at uh, do our genes impact um, the impact? Do, do our genes uh, make us more susceptible to addiction to mentholated cigarettes? And what they found specifically for African-Americans there is a genetic variation called a genetic polymorphism that increases uh, the uh, addiction or susceptibility to addiction to mentholated cigarettes. Okay, so for African Americans, menthol cigarettes may actually be more addictive. And uh, it's not a coincidence that the majority of cigarettes smoked by African Americans are menthols. Um, so for me, you know, I am 100% for uh, banning the mentholated cigarettes because, you know, they're not good for the general population, specifically with Americans. There may be separate issues at play that are based on genetics. Um, and I know some people are upset, like, oh, you know, this is racist towards Afro-Americans because we're taking away cigarettes that Afro-Americans are smoking. And I'm like, this, we're taking away a poison that has disproportionately impacted our community. So I think this is a good thing. But that's, you know, that's my personal opinion. But it is relevant when it comes to cancer. So other issues, alcohol. Uh, alcohol definitely can be uh, a risk factor for certain cancers, uh, esophageal cancer specifically, and also stomach cancer. Um Genes and liver cancer, if you develop cirrhosis from too much alcohol exposure, uh, genetics obviously can play a role. So it's good to know your family history, okay? Uh, especially your first degree relatives. So this is why I encourage all my patients to talk to their family members and talk about healthcare issues as opposed to keeping things secret. Uh, a lot of times someone may have a cancer that could have a hereditary component, but they don't want to talk about it. And I see this in colon cancer all the time. 
So I tell my patients who've been diagnosed with colon cancer, like, hey, you really got to tell your brothers and sisters to uh, get a colonoscopy if they have not. Uh, majority of patients are, you know, very receptive, receptive to that. Uh, however, there are some people who are like, oh, well, you know, this is a secret. I don't want to talk to someone. Uh, we really have to, if we can't take care of our own family members, you know, how can we take care of the rest of society? Um, environmental tox toxins are definitely, you know, important. So, you know, now there's uh, BPA in a lot of the plastics. Uh, some of the pesticides that we potentially get exposed to uh, may be carcinogens. Um, and, you know, in certain neighborhoods, uh, there's certain neighborhoods that are, are right near um, kind of garbage dumps and waste sites, waste, waste sites. And, and those neighborhoods potentially could have higher amounts of carcinogens just in the environment. So it's good to be aware of how the environment can impact our risk for cancer. Um, but even still, diet is often neglected. Okay. So you've seen a lot of ads, I'm assuming, for like anti smoking campaigns and, and stuff like that. And that's important. But, you know, there's not a lot of ads when it comes to foods and cancer. Um, so I think my goals for this talk it really didn't define, define cancer. So what is cancer? We're like, what are we even really talking about? Discuss diet as a risk factor and highlight the role of diet and, and cancer prevention and or treatment. Okay. Uh, so it can go both ways. So what is cancer? Um, and the reason why I asked this question is, you know, years ago when I was a medical student, I was volunteering at a clinic called Project Brotherhood on the South Side. So Project Brotherhood was a clinic um, for black men who lived in a neighborhood. So this is in a Woodlawn area. And it's actually not too far from the University of Chicago where I work. But I uh, had a grant. I was working with some of the other doctors there and we were trying to increase awareness around colon cancer. OK, and we did focus groups with men in the community. And with the focus groups, we were trying to really understand what it would take to get more men to undergo colonoscopy. OK, so we we're trying to navigate some of the issues with, you know, machismo and masculinity and the idea of, you know, having a colonoscopy and stuff like that. Um, but one of the questions that we asked uh, the participants in the focus groups was, what is cancer? OK. Um, and the responses that I got were astonishing. OK. And, you know, within the focus groups, there were men of all different walks of life. Some men were educated beyond college uh, with, uh, you know, master's degrees, PhDs, et cetera. Uh, and lawyers, there were other men, men who, um, you know, never graduated high school. Um, but the responses were very varied. And uh, one of the responses I remember, uh, one man was saying that cancer is a fungus that grows on you. And it's like, well, it's not a fungus. Um, another man said, well, cancer is what the doctors tell you when they don't know what's going on. They have to say something. So they just say cancer. I'm like, well, sir, it's, it doesn't work exactly like that. Um, and another person said cancer is, um, you, you know, it's something that people inject in you and you get cancer from like the medications and everything. So there was a little bit of uh, medical mistrust, but there was also just not a lot of information, not a lot of, not a understanding about what cancer is. Uh, so the basic textbook definition of cancer is basically it is a disease caused by an uncontrolled division of abnormal cells in a part of the body. OK, so our cells are multiplying, dividing all the time. That's a natural part of life. Um, but that multiplication and replication of these cells is typically controlled. OK, so when we're replicating our own DNA, 
it's done in a way where the DNA doesn't change as we replicate. Um, now, with cancer, what happens is whenever we uh, replicate our own DNA to allow these cells to divide and multiply, uh, sometimes mistakes can happen, okay? And where uh, uh, the DNA is not replicated normally, and you know maybe part of the DNA is missing, or there is an area of DNA that's changed, and, and that's what we call uh, mutations to some degree. And there are chemicals in our environment, including our food, that could increase our risk for uh, accumulating more and more mutations. So, you know, one mutation may not necessarily have an impact, um, but one mutation in a, a specific gene that has a specific purpose in terms of decreasing the risk of cancer may have a huge impact. Um, so with genes in general, genetics counts for about 23 to 26% of our lifespan. So not, not entirely. Um, our, our lifespan isn't entirely controlled by our genetics. Okay. So there's a lot of different things that we can do to either decrease or increase uh, our lifespan. And that's why it's one of the reasons why we're focusing on lifestyle. So I'm glad you brought off lifestyle medicine, you know, only recently, only recently the lifestyle medicine become a field. Okay. So we're talking about the impact of lifestyle, which we've known for, you know, decades at this point, but up until the past 10 years, lifestyle medicine wasn't even a field of medicine. Uh, and that's how far behind we are in terms of, you know, really, putting our patients in a better position to live healthier lives. Um, but I digress. So the major factors contributing to our lifespan are, uh, you know, really environment and lifestyle. Okay. So these are, you know, really the two major uh, factors in addition to genetics that, that really contribute to how long we're going to live uh, and also whether or not we'll get cancer or not. Uh, so can diet increase the risk of cancer? I don't know, Chef AJ, what do you think in your uh, experience? Have you, you know, do you have any concerns about diet and cancer? I'm pretty sure it can, because when I was 43 years old, I was diagnosed with precancerous polyps in my sigmoid colon, and I had a horrible diet for the first 43 years of my life. So I say definitely. Got you. Uh, and, you know, I, I had a probably a horrible diet for the first you know, 30 or so years of my life. And I had to make a lot of changes. And I think I even have a picture of here in here uh, before I made some of those dietary changes. But uh, we do know that extra weight can uh, affect and increase the risk of cancer. Uh, so the percent of cancers that have been attributed to excess weight, it's a, you know, a variety of them. Okay. So breast cancer, uh, 14% of breast cancers are attributed to having excess weight. Okay. So I'm not trying to weight shame anybody. I feel like everyone should be comfortable with their bodies. And I definitely, uh, encourage positive body images, but you know, nonetheless, we should be aware of how much excess weight can contribute to certain conditions. Um, so colon cancer in men, 32% uh, of colon cancers are attributed to having excess weight. Whereas in women, 17% of uh, colon cancers are attributed to weight. Uterine cancer, uh, cancer of the uterus or endometrial cancer is another term. 48% of endometrial cancers are attributed to weight. Okay. Uh, so for, I mean, that really means if more people had, um, you know, closer to ideal body weights and, and what I mean by ideal body weight, I don't mean what you see on Instagram. I mean, you know, for your body, what is a healthy weight? 
for a lot of people, that's going to decrease the risk of endometrial cancer. And that's a big deal. I mean, to have endometrial cancer, that means you're taking your uterus out. And I've seen people even, um, you know, during their reproductive years getting endometrial cancer. And that's sad. I mean, to, to not be able to have children because of cancer. Um, thyroid cancer, one of my good buddies from college had thyroid cancer. Um, 32% of thyroid cancer is associated with excess weight. Now, thankfully, my buddy, he, uh, he survived the thyroid cancer. They were able to remove it. And subsequently, uh, he's dedicated his life to, you know, exercise and eating right. He went on onto a plant based diet and he's probably lost easily 100 pounds or so uh, just from the dietary changes and exercise. Pancreatic cancer, 14% for men, 11% for women associated with weight. Esophageal cancer, uh, I mean, the amount of esophageal cancer attributed to weight is astonishing. Uh, kidney cancer and ovarian cancer also have a, a weight component, okay? So it's good to be aware of this. Uh, now, what about eating out? So I know with the pandemic, uh, a lot of people have been eating out, which is good. I mean, I have a lot of friends that are chefs. I want to keep my, my chef friends and their employees in business. Uh, but, you know, we still need to be aware of uh, how certain behaviors can affect our health. Uh, so, you know, obviously people are cooking less in general, not even with the pandemic, but just in general. OK, um, now we have made some improvement. OK, so. In 1965 to 1966, the percentage of men uh, in, who cook increased significantly by 2008. OK, so we're talking 29% to 42% of men that are cooking nowadays, which, you know, ideally I want to see more than 42% of men cooking. I feel like we all men should cook. Uh, so this whole concept that, you know, cooking is something that's not manly and men shouldn't do and all that toxic, toxic masculinity stuff. Like we, 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 we just need to stop thinking like that. OK, it's 2021. You know, human beings who are adults should be able to cook for themselves, uh, period. And the percentage of women who cook, uh, cook actually has decreased uh, over the past, you know, 40, 50 years or so. So from 1965 to 2008. Uh, the percentage of women who cook went from 92% to 65%. Now, obviously, a lot of this has to do with, uh, you know, access to higher education, access to busier careers. Uh, so there are a lot of uh, positive things that happened, you know, over the past 50, 50 years or so that could explain this. But regardless of um, those positive changes, cooking is still a way to become healthy. Okay. And this is uh, one of the reasons why I tell people one of the best ways to control your health is through controlling what you eat. And if you're not cooking, you are giving that control to someone else. And who knows if they have your health in mind. Um, so there was a good study that that looked at uh, eating out uh, and phthalate levels, okay? So phthalates are basically a known carcinogen. And what the study found was that when people were eating out, they were eating uh, more foods that were wrapped and like your hamburger wrappers and stuff like that. They were wrapped in uh, containers that have uh, phthalates and phthalates are known carcinogens. So what they found was eating out for some people was associated with 35, a 35% increase in your phthalate levels. And again, phthalates are known carcinogens. So we not only have to think about the foods that we're eating, we also have to think about the impact of what the foods are contained in. So the actual containers and wrappers or wrappings for the food may also have adverse an adverse impact on our health. So what about food? Okay. Um, 
ultra processed foods uh, have been a really a big topic of conversation recently. Uh, and there was one study that looked at the impact of ultra processed foods on cancer. And what they found was for every additional 10% increase in ultra processed foods uh, that translated to an overall increase of developing cancer by 12%. Okay. Um, so every time you eat 10% more ultra processed foods, the risk of cancer goes up by 12%. Uh, breast cancer may increase by 11%. Um, now, why am I talking so much about ultra processed foods? Like, why is that even important? Well, it's important because in the United States, 60% of our calories come from ultra processed foods. So that means the majority of calories for the average American is coming from ultra processed foods and ultra processed foods. If you really want to get down to the, you know, the bare bones of it they aren't real foods to begin with. Okay. So the ultra processed foods are really made with industrialized ingredients that aren't grown. And these are ingredients that you can't find at a grocery store. Okay. So like I'm a trained chef. I know how to cook a lot of stuff, but if you ask me how to make your, you know, your favorite cola, I want to know where to begin to make, you know, cola at home. Like I don't have sodium benzoate and, and phosphoric acid and some of the stuff that it goes into some of the colas. Uh, you can't just make that stuff in your kitchen. Uh, you need industrial chemical ingredients to actually make it. I don't have, you know, a lot of the preservatives, like for instance, you know, carboxymethylcellulose is a common preservative or emulsifier. Like I don't have carboxymethylcellulose just hanging out in my, my kitchen cabinets. Uh, I can't just, you know, go grab Lake Blue and, you know, red number five and all that stuff. But these are some of the foods that characterize or some of the ingredients that characterize ultra processed foods. So I do want to point out that not all countries are eating the same way we're eating in America. So although the Western diet is definitely becoming more popular throughout the globe and we're seeing the, the impact of Westernization. OK, so we're seeing in other countries who had low rates of uh, having folks who, uh, who have obesity or low rates of diabetes, but now those rates are increasing. And some of this has to do with the globalization of the Western diet. Um, but even still with that happening, other countries are eating less ultra processed foods than we are. So one example would be France. Okay. So I've been to France. I've kicked it in Paris. And what's amazing about Paris, you can go to some of these little convenience stores and still get like fresh food. And even at the checkout aisle, instead of having all the sweets and stuff like that, I was at some store, they had like fresh baguettes and croissants and whatnot in the checkout aisle. Whereas, you know, you go to the United States in a gas station, we have, you know, you can name any number of sweets and, you know, bubble gums and stuff like that. But in France, uh, only about 36% of the calories for the average French person comes from ultra processed foods based upon a large epidemiologic public health study did and done in France, uh, which is it's very different than what we see here in the United States. So in terms of the types of food processing, it's good to be aware of what the categories are. OK, so there's four categories of food processing and we call this the NOVA classification. So NOVA, not an acronym, it doesn't sound for anything. Whoever came up with it, they just said, hey. We're going to call this Nova just because I feel like calling it Nova. I think that's amazing. I want to get to the point in, in my life where I can just name something and that's just the way it is. But uh, nonetheless, uh, the four categories include unprocessed 
or minimally processed foods. So these are your fresh and, and, you know, frozen fruits and vegetables and your whole grains, et cetera. Your processed culinary ingredients is another category. That's sugar, salt, and, you know, all the herbs and stuff that we use to, to flavor food. Um, then you have your processed foods, which, Again, a lot of times people confuse processed foods with ultra processed foods, but your processed foods are, you know, kind of processed, but they still resemble uh, the actual food that you're consuming. So like canned foods, your dried fruit, but then your ultra processed foods are something totally different and they have little semblance to the food they originally came from. So like your soft drinks, I mean, case in point, grape soda is a far cry from a grape. Okay. Um, and you know, like Coca-Cola, I don't even know if it has, you know, Coca in it. You know what I mean? Like it's used to have cocaine in it though. Remember it it used to, right. It used to have cocaine back in the day. Um, but nonetheless, you know, these are foods that are, are, have a remote relationship to the original food they came from. And even like, you know, you look at the frozen chicken nuggets, like the frozen chicken nuggets, uh, years ago when I was a kid, I used to, um, you know, my mom would make chicken breasts. Okay. So she would make a chicken breast and I would look at the meat of the chicken breast and it seemed very different than what was an inside of chicken nugget. And I remember we confused like, ma, like why do the chicken nuggets don't look like your chicken breast? Uh, and a lot of it has to do with processing. Okay. Um, uh, so these are all kind of processed, processed foods and, you know, some of the instant noodles. Uh, so I like going to ramen places, uh, but the ramen noodles are very different than what you get at a, a ramen restaurant. So what about bacon? Okay. I know everyone loves bacon and, you know, you talk to any average chef nowadays, you throw bacon in any dish automatically. Everyone's like, oh, bacon tastes, makes everything taste better. Uh, but there is a, a price associated with bacon. Okay. And it's not just the cost of bacon. Uh, then it, we may pay for it in health costs to some degree. So especially if you're doing too much bacon. Uh, so there was one study that looked at uh, bacon and the risk of colon cancer. And what they found was two servings of bacon per day, which is 25 grams. It's not a whole lot. Uh, was associated with a 20% increased risk of developing colon cancer. Uh, so for me as a gastroenterologist, when I see people with a lot of polyps, like I'll have a conversation. I'm like, you know, how much processed meat are you consuming? Or how much fruits and vegetables are you consuming? Because they they may offer some protection uh, against some of the ultra processed meat that people are consuming. But I'd like to have those conversations. And, you know, for a lot of folks, it's a lot of ultra processed foods in their diet when I'm, I'm finding some of these polyps. Um, but is uh, Dr. McDonald, excuse me for interrupting, but is it, yeah. you know, you, you mentioned that they're eating, most people eating over 60% of their calories from these foods. And I, I would venture that some people it's even higher than that. Definitely so the higher. other 30% or 40% coming from animal products, because it, it seems to me that it's not just what they're eating, but what they're not eating. And most people seem to eat a dismal amount of fruits and vegetables, especially vegetables. Yeah. So uh, I will get into the uh, percentage of Americans who are eating uh, enough uh, fruits and vegetables. That number is very low. Uh, so I, I agree with you. I think it's not just what we're eating. It's also what we're not eating because, uh, you know, fruits and vegetables have antioxidants and other plant based chemicals called phytochemicals that may have some anti cancer properties. Um, but when we have a diet that's, uh, you know, not balanced by, you know, you're eating foods that potentially can increase the risk of cancer, but you're not countering uh, that risk with foods that decrease the risk. 
that's one of the reasons why you could, uh, I mean, that's a good example of how our diet has become out of balance. Okay. Uh, so I, I know a lot of uh, people are promoting plant-based diets, which I agree with, but even if you don't necessarily want to become a vegetarian, you should still have a diet that's in balance. Okay. Um, and even with vegetarians, uh, and vegans, you, you know, I also remind people you can have a diet that's out of balance. Uh, even if you're a vegan, especially if your vegan diet primarily consists of some of the vegan processed foods, as opposed to whole plant-based foods. Um, so, you know, I, you know, I, I saw someone who was a vegan. I asked him what, uh, you know, what vegetables they like. I got excited. I'm like, oh, okay, you're on a plant-based diet. What fruits and vegetables do you like? And I, I want to talk about it because, you know, I love talking about fruits and veggies, but they were like, oh, they don't like vegetables. I'm like, what do you mean you don't like vegetables? <laughs> like, how are you going to be vegetarian? You don't like vegetables. And their whole diet was just pasta and potato chips. That is a diet that is out of balance. Okay. Um, now, one of the reasons why uh, processed meats, ultra processed meats, uh, including bacon, your sausages and your hot dogs are concerning is because of the preservatives in them. Uh, and one of the preservatives is nitrates. Okay. So the nitrates have been linked to cancer in multiple different studies. And so we're talking about in vitro studies where we're just looking at the impact of these uh, chemicals on cells. Uh, they've been linked to cancer in animal studies. And then, you know, you can't do any human studies where you give a whole bunch of people nitrates and, and see what happens. But these population based studies where people report eating more foods uh, with nitrites, they typically also have an association with higher rates of cancer. And so another good study uh, where they were looking specifically at red meat and they found that two ounces of red meat daily was associated with an increase, 18% increased risk of developing colon cancer. So the standard American diet, I mean, almost includes, you know, daily, not only daily consumption of red meat, but, you know, eating it multiple times a day. Okay. So, you know, the standard American diet that I grew up was one where for breakfast, you know, reasonable breakfast would have had bacon and sausage. Okay. Uh, for lunch, a reasonable lunch, you know, you could have had a roast beef sandwich. Um, and for dinner, you know, maybe you had some pork chops or, you know, roast beef or beef stew or something like that. So in a given day, you could easily eat, you know, way more than two ounces of red meat. You can eat, you know, two ounces of red meat for each meal easily. Um, so that is a type of diet that may be associated with an increased risk of colon cancer. Uh, and not only is the consumption of red meat uh, problematic, but, you know, the way we prepare it could also be problematic, too. Now, I, I know I spoke on colon cancer and red meat, but red meat has also been associated with other cancers, including a 23% increased risk of developing breast cancer. Now, uh, for those who do want to eat chicken, uh, I do want to point out uh, and a lot of meta-analysis that uh, chicken was not associated with increased risk of uh, breast cancer, colon cancer. And some of that has to do with uh, heme iron specifically. So before we got on, uh, before we started recording, uh, Chef AJ and I, we were having a conversation about uh, chemicals within red meat that potentially can be associated with cancer. So TMAO uh, is one, and that's not a, a chemical within the meat itself. It's how the bacteria in the gut uh, convert uh, some of the ingredients within meat to this chemical called TMAO that may be associated with heart disease and maybe even cancer to some degree. Uh, however, one chemical within meat is called heme iron. So the heme iron um, uh, can be associated 
associated with uh, cancer. Now, white meat uh, does not have heme iron, and that's why the meat is white as opposed to red, okay? Uh, and hence, white meat may have a, a lower association with cancer. Um, but, but that's not entirely perfect, okay? Because if you're grilling white meat, and cooking meat at high uh, high temperatures using high heat cooking techniques, that cooking technique can also generate carcinogens, okay? Uh, so even though the meat may be white, if you cook it and get a char on it, uh, that can increase the development of carcinogens, and specifically carcinogens called heterocyclic amines and polyaromatic hydrocarbons, okay? Um, now another concept, you know, now I'm putting on my chef hat and we're talking about cooking techniques. Okay. So, uh, reuse cooking oils. Uh, so you're using the same oil and you're, you know, kind of burning it, burning it over and over again. That also, uh, may potentially be associated with an increased risk of cancer. Uh, because what happens is every time you burn that oil, you're creating more carcinogens. Okay. And, and I think this is relevant. So my, you know, my family members, we come from the South. Okay. And, you know, my grandmothers who uh, taught me how to cook and these are you know, amazing, amazing chefs. Um, but what I noticed about both my grandmothers in their kitchen, they always had, they always had a jar of uh, dark oil, um, in their kitchen. And what they would do is, uh, in order to not waste oil, if they fried something, they would just use that oil over and over and over again until the point where it became, you know, extremely dark, uh, from burnt ingredients. And, and I know that practice is not unique to my grandmother's that's, you know, fairly commonplace. Um, but it's, it's dangerous. It really is. Um, because reusing that cooking oil, all you're doing every time you use it again, you're making more and more carcinogens that's going to end up in the foods that you're eating. Now, this is me many years ago, uh, back when I, I was barbecuing and, you know, this is probably me 10 years. Well, let's see, when was this? It's probably 10, more than 10 years ago. Uh, thankfully, I was relatively same over the past 10 years, but uh, nonetheless, uh, I was barbecuing. And, and when I would barbecue, I would sometimes be concerned about, you know, what impact does inhaling the smoke from the grill have on my risk of cancer? Like, I'm not a cigarette smoker, never been a cigarette smoker, but at one point I was a food smoker, okay? Um, so I would, you know, put food in my smoker and everything, and and I would sit out there with my friends and, you know, drink a bottle of beer as the, the smoke's going everywhere, and we would inhale that, not intentionally, but I mean, it just comes with the territory. And me being a physician, I'm like, is this even safe? Uh, and what I found, it's not safe. Okay. So they've done a lot of studies where they looked at just inhaling the cooking fumes associated with burning oil and burning meat uh, can potentially increase the risk of cancer. So they've done a lot of studies actually in China. Um, so in China, where a lot of people are cooking with woks. And uh, I don't know if you ever cooked with a wok, Chef AJ, but one of the techniques for cooking with woks, one, you have to use high heat, okay? So you want that wok to be really, really hot. And, and you know, one of the signs that the, the wok is hot, if the oil in the wok is starting to burn, if you see this, you know, a little bit of smoke, that's when you know you want to start um, adding some of them to the food in to, to start uh, doing the stir fry. But they found that in, in, in China, a lot of people inhale who inhale some of the fumes uh, from the stir fry that actually increases the risk of developing lung cancer. 
So now can foods decrease the risk of cancer? Okay. We spent a lot of time talking about foods increasing the risk, but what about decreasing the risk? Uh, let's shift gears and talk about something a little bit more positive. Okay. So we know that a high fiber diet is associated with a 21% decreased risk of developing colon cancer. Okay. So that's huge. Uh, and this is one of the reasons that I recommend Everyone, you know, regardless of where you want to fall in line on the plant-based spectrum, everyone needs to include more fiber in their diet. Okay, uh, and it's not—it's not hard. Okay, it's not hard to get fiber. Um, and you know, a lot of people ask me, "Where do you get fiber from?" You get fiber from fruits, vegetables, whole grains. I mean, there's a lot of different foods out there that you know, if you don't like, you know, spinach, you may like something else. Uh, so I think there's a lot of food people can pick and choose from to increase the diet, dietary fiber intake. So plant-based foods be one of them. Here's a beautiful looking salad. Uh, beautiful. A lot of different vegetables in there. Uh, a lot of, you know, uh, phytochemicals that may uh, decrease the risk of cancer, but there's also a lot of fiber in there. Um, now in general, Chef AJ, so you brought up like maybe people aren't just aren't eating enough vegetables and that's true. Like we are not eating enough vegetables. Uh, so even though, you know, you go on Instagram and you, you see a lot of plant-based influencers and whatnot, we have still have a long way to go to influence the, the public in general at large to eat more fruits and vegetables. So uh, only 9.3% of Americans meet guidelines for vegetable intake. I mean, we're really only talking about a cup and a half of vegetables. Uh, that's not a whole lot. I mean, I, I put a cup of, you know, spinach in my smoothie every morning and add a cup of fruit. So like we're with, and that's easy. Okay. That's easy. Um, but we have a long way to go uh, to to reach the, the recommended amounts of vegetable intake. But that's going to help us decrease the risk of cancer. OK, because cancer is scary. I'm starting to see more and more people, you know, under the age of 50, even under the age of 40, getting diagnosed with scary cancers. Um, now, coffee is also associated with a decreased risk of developing liver cancer and endometrial cancer. Okay. So, um, and, and, and when I say coffee, I, I don't mean that sweet latte that has a whole bunch of sugar that, you know, tastes good. Um, I mean, really just black coffee. Okay. So your coffee, you know, the latte that has a lot of dairy and a lot of cream and stuff in there. Um, and also a lot of sugar, you know, these are, that's a lot of calories and those calories could increase the, the risk of gaining weight and I already pointed out how weight can increase our risk of cancer. And I do want to point out that some of the darker world's caffeines may have uh, higher amounts of acrylamide and acrylamide is uh, a known carcinogen. And, you know, in, in California, I believe at one point they started putting warning labels on coffee um, because of the acrylamide content. So, you know, does coffee cause cancer? Um, there's no studies that have really demonstrated that, uh, in large and majority of studies that have demonstrated that coffee does have a protective effect, but nonetheless, in animal studies and in vitro studies, this acrylamide stuff, uh, can cause some DNA changes that potentially can lead to cancer. So it's good to be aware of, and, you know, for me, I'm definitely a coffee drinker, but, I don't drink really, really dark roast coffee. Uh, so I try to do some of the lighter roast coffees uh, just out of concern for the acrylamide content. So which dietary patterns are associated with decreased risk of cancer? Uh, Mediterranean diet, okay? So 
you know, there's the Mediterranean diet is not necessarily a plant-based diet, but it's one that plant forward. Um, so you're consuming more fruits and vegetables and uh, whole grains and, and seeds and nuts than you're doing meat. Uh, so meat is really not the star of the Mediterranean diet. It's really just, a, you know, a, a not even a co-star. It, like the, the meat is just a supporting character as opposed to the star. So uh, vegan and whole food plant-based diets have also been associated with decreased risk of developing cancer. Uh, so seven-day Adventist study, I mean, there's a lot of different studies in the United States where they looked at a substantial number of vegetarians or people on a plant-based slash plant-forward diet who had lower rates of cancer. Uh, so, you know, for people who are trying to figure out dietary strategies to decrease your risk of cancer, adopting a whole food plant-based diet or getting as close to that diet as possible is probably uh, more in line with preventing your risk of cancer or decreasing your risk of cancer. Um, so, you know, ultimately, what's the bottom line? Uh, I think in general, um, first and foremost, don't smoke cigarettes or stop smoking cigarettes. Uh, but outside of that, try to maintain a healthy body weight, uh, which healthy and ideal body weight. These are, you know, two different things. And uh, again, I'm not trying to body shame anyone. Uh, and I don't think you have to look like what you see on Instagram as far as the Instagram model to be classified as having a healthy body weight. Um, I also encourage people to consume less animal fat, less ultra processed foods, less red meat specifically and then increase more fruits and vegetables. Uh, it's really as simple as that. And it's not just eating the same fruit and vegetable, really try to get a variety because when you eat fruits of different colors, you know that you're exposing your body to different nutrients. Uh, and some of these nutrients, again, may be protective or have anti-cancer properties. So chef, I know I went through a lot, but uh, any questions? I mean, what do you think about all this? Well, like, I, I think, I think, they need to teach this in medical school. And I think they need to change what the patients in hospitals eat. I've talked to lots of doctors about that. And they said that when they have surveys, if they don't give the patients what they want, they, they rate the hospital poorly, you know? It's, uh, well, it's complicated, but uh, yeah, I agree with the food that we give people in the hospital. It makes no sense. And I, I feel like the hospital is a good time to even uh, start the conversation with some of the behavioral change. Um, and the, the most frustrating things that I, I've seen, I remember being a medical student and a resident, uh, you see someone who has a heart attack, uh, literally just had a heart attack and they had a cardiac catheterization where, you know, the cardiologist had to go into their groin with a, um, with a catheter and deploy a little metal stent, which almost looks like a circular fence that keeps the arteries open. So, you know, after this procedure that literally saved their life, um, you know, you go to the room and, and people are just ordering hamburgers and, and, you know, fried fish sticks and whatnot. And like, this is not a heart healthy diet. Like, this is really the opportunity where we could provide some education uh, that hopefully could lead to some dietary change. But what do we do instead? We give people French fries and fried food after they had a heart attack. And that's, you know, that's happening in hospitals all over the country. Um, and some of that, you know, to your point, patient satisfaction uh, is important, but, you know, we have to balance it with actually keeping people alive and preventing disease. Um, you know, you could say, you know, case in point, the opiate epidemic, opiate epidemic is a good example of this. OK, so there are a lot of doctors who are giving out pain medications uh, purely because of patient satisfaction. Uh, so, you know, anyone came in like, oh, you know, my back kind of tickles. Oh, you know what? 
here's the prescription for oxycontin it's going to keep you happy um now what did that get us that got us to the point where you know literally the life expectancy of the average american has gone down um because of deaths related to opiates uh, and people use that same argument, patient satisfaction, as a way, a reason for exposing our population to as much opiates as we did. So I don't think, you know, the patient satisfaction, I don't want to say it's not important, but we also have to incorporate that with the big picture of the health of our entire country to some degree. Um, like, you know, satisfaction as a chef, you know, if I open up a restaurant that just served nothing but fried foods. I'm sure I would make a whole lot of money. I'm sure. <laughs> well, think about it, Kentucky Fried Chicken. <laughs> right, basically, yeah. Like we're <laughs> exactly. I'm sure you make a you you make a, a millions of dollars just doing that. But that doesn't necessarily mean you're working in the best interests of uh, the overall health of the country. You know. When you were talking about smoking meats, Nikki said, "But is grilling out too?" So I don't want to say grilling and smoking. I don't want to say they're out. Okay. Uh, so we know that uh, cooking anything that's going to put char marks on food, uh, potentially within those char marks, there's going to be carcinogens. Okay. So, you know, if you grill once, is that going to give you cancer? No, it's not going to give you cancer. If you grill 10 times, is that going to give you cancer? No. But if this is what you're doing every single day, for years. Um, that's probably not the best thing to do, especially if you have a family history where you may have uh, a already a genetic predisposition to developing cancer. And now on top of that, you're adding this extra environmental risk by, you know, grilling all the time. So, you know, for me, do I grill, you know, I may grill periodically and, it, and, and, and one, this is specifically for meat. Uh, so grilling vegetables may not necessarily have the same impact. Um, and also but, about the oil, maybe, maybe, you know, I, I don't know, because I wonder if the oil at high temperature has something to do with it, because I don't personally grill, but I do use an air fryer and people say, oh, you're creating acrylamides, but I don't know, I just don't worry about it with my diet, you know, because I'm not using oil or salt. And Right. So, I mean, with acrylamides, you, you know, there's definitely even in the air fryer, there's going to be a, acrylamides with roasting at high uh, heat, tech, high, uh, higher heats. So like specifically in like potatoes and whatnot, the potato skins can develop acrylamides. But, you know, for me, do I still roast? Yes, I, I roast all the time because it's delicious. Um, and I'm, I'm roasting vegetables, though. So yes. I'm roasting foods that, again, are going to have protective properties against cancer. Um, so, you know, if you wanted to have the perfect diet that's going to decrease your risk of cancer. I mean, you'd be sacrificing a lot of, a lot of different foods and a lot of different cooking techniques. Now for some people who choose to do that, that's fine. Uh, but you know, I'm also a, a chef who likes the way, you know, who likes making food taste good. So I, I balance, uh, making food taste good with my overall health. Uh, and it's one of the reasons why, you know, do I roast my vegetables all the time? No, I don't roast my vegetables all the time. You know, sometimes I'll steam my vegetables. Sometimes I eat them raw. Um, and then when it comes to grilling, uh, if I'm grilling, you know, there are some things that I grill. There's some things that I don't, um, but I'm not grilling all the time at the end of the day. Dr. McDonald, do you have any more slides? Cause if not, people are asking you to go full screen so they can see your face. Uh, yeah, you can go full screen now. 
Okay, great. I'm just going to stop screen sharing. And uh, let's see if I can do that. You Here, I can, I can stop the share right now. There you go. People are commenting how much they like your voice. It's very smooth and mellow. Maybe you could just consider having a podcast. Oh, you know, I should start a podcast. I got the podcast mic. <laughs> I know you look, you look all professional. That's amazing. You know, why is it though that everything that's bad for us, like people like it so much? It's crazy. Well, you know, I don't like calling food inherently good, inherently bad, because uh, you, you can get in trouble that way. Uh, so, you know, case in point, um, I had a person uh, in clinic and they came to see me and they were like, yeah, you know, I love the way my mom, you know, makes mac and cheese. Like, I, like I've loved it ever since I was a little kid. And it's just, I, I associated with, you know, holidays and whatnot. Is mac and cheese bad? And, you know, I don't want to tell them that, you know, all these fond memories of their mom and grandparents making this food they love is bad. I mean, there's a lot of bonding that happens over food and and uh, there's a lot of positive experiences that are good uh, that happens over food that may not necessarily be the, the healthiest. Um, but the pattern is if that's all we're doing, that's all we're consuming, um, then that pattern is not necessarily the healthiest pattern. And in me saying it's not the healthiest pattern is not uh, making any, any judgment against the food is really just, you know, t- talking about what the data shows and data shows that, you know, if you ate mac and cheese all the time every day, you're probably not going to have the healthiest life. Um, but does that mean that your grandmother was wrong for giving you the joy of mac and cheese? It doesn't. And the problem with a lot of the foods that we love that aren't the healthiest they're just tasty and they're engineered in such a way that our human brain, I mean, they, they cause the release of dopamine in our brain. Okay. So like if I eat a bag of potato chips and whatnot, uh, it's going to activate the pleasure centers in my, in my brain and I'm going to release dopamine. And, and that's why, you know, most people want more and more. And this is how some of the foods that, uh, how the foods can become addictive. Um, so I, I don't want to say that they're good or bad. It's just that there's some of the foods that we gravitate towards, do activate our pleasure centers, uh, which makes us gravitate towards the more. And unfortunately, some of those foods are just not the healthiest if consumed frequently. Yeah, well, my, my uncle, who was a physician, used to say, everything I like is either illegal, immoral, or fattening. <laughs> <laughs> so, so- but, but you can also make healthy foods taste really good. Oh, that's the other thing. Once people, that's the thing, Dr. McDonald, it's, you know, the person that said mac and cheese, once the person neuro, neuro adapts and stops eating so much sugar, fat, and salt, I mean, those of us that eat this way aren't doing it because like, oh, wow, aren't we great because we don't eat these. It's because we genuinely love our food. Yeah. We wouldn't be able to, Dr. Furman, for example, wouldn't be able to eat the way he eats or Dr. Goldhammer for 40 years if we genuinely didn't love the food. It's just that it's hard for people during that period of eating foods that aren't as dopamine producing. It takes some time. And I think a lot of people just want results fast. Yeah. Like uh, the other day, someone asked me, like, you know, Dr. McDonald, why don't you post what you're eating for lunch today? And I had a panini that I made with uh, I made it on my little panini press, but it was a sourdough bread uh, with a homemade uh, kind of like tomato chutney. And I put some spinach on there and some tofu and I smashed it into a panini. It was delicious. And I was at work. You can tell me you know, I wasn't eating like the most delicious hamburger or, you know, something that people eat because I was at work just looking at the sandwich like, man, this sandwich is good. And you know, something's good when you talk to the food where you just look at it, you're just like, man, 
it was a good sandwich. <laughs> and my residents, they came in the room like, who are you talking to? I'm like, I'm just marveling at how tasty my sandwich was. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. You know, when you talk about foods that can cause cancer, one thing I didn't see in your slide presentation, I've often wondered about because you had mentioned that so many vegans still smoke cigarettes, which by the way, if you're an ethical vegan, you got to stop because guess who those cigarettes are tested on? Beagles. So you, you're contributing to something that you don't want to be contributing to. They, so they test the cigarettes on beagles? Absolutely. I'm That's terrible. Because they're the most common lab animals for, for these kind of things. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure they test them on other animals too, but there's a whole doc. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So think about it. You're contributing to animal testing, which is a, if you're an ethical vegan, you probably yeah. don't support. But so many vegans still drink diet soda. And I'm wondering if you if there's any link with cancer or other, maybe not even cancer, but as a GI doctor, I've always heard that those things aren't good for our gut. Aspartame and xylitol and the stevia and erythritol, those things just aren't great for us. Yeah. So, you know, with the artificial sweeteners, I mean, there definitely have been some studies that looked at cancer specifically when it comes to saccharin. Uh, so saccharin was one of artificial sweeteners that were associated with uh, increased risk of cancer based upon mouse and rat studies. Um, with some of the artificial sweeteners in terms of our gut health, what happens is these are sugars that we don't absorb. Uh, so we don't digest them and don't absorb them. And as a result, they can get into our colon where the majority of the bacteria that make up our microbiome live. And those bacteria, these are bacteria that aren't just inactive. They just aren't, you know, sitting there, you know, doing nothing. Uh, they're actively involved and they're alive and they can digest things that uh, we don't digest well and convert it into gas. So for a lot of people who consume like xylitol and some of the artificial sweeteners, uh, they can definitely have increased gas and they feel a lot of gas bloating and uh, symptoms that could irritate irritable bowel syndrome. Um, so it's one of the reasons why, you know, when I see someone coming in with gas and bloating, one of the first questions I ask them, how much artificial sweeteners are they doing? And typically, uh, before we even get to the point where we have to use medications and, and stuff, if I can get artificial sweeteners out of someone's diet who's complaining of bloating, most of their gas bloating symptoms will go away, especially if they're uh, also avoiding uh, dairy products that have lactose. So I would say artificial sweeteners and lactose would probably be the two more common reasons for bloating that I see in my practice especially on the South side where I have a predominantly African-American practice and African-Americans uh, have higher rates of lactose intolerance compared to other groups. So, you know, most of my job is really just telling people to stop drinking milk. It's, it's amazing. Like I went to medical school and, you know, seven years of uh, three years of residency, a year of three years, I'm sorry, three years of GI and a year of nutrition training. And now I come out after all that to just say, drink less milk. <laughs> right. Are you familiar with the work of Dr. Milton Mills, how he talks about how the dietary guidelines are racially biased? Yeah, you know, I, it's, it's interesting. So uh, I, I definitely like, uh, like him and I see where he's coming from, but I, I, I do feel like that language is a little bit strong when you, you know, just say is racist because, you know, people are drinking milk. Well, uh, if you follow him on social media, that's just who he is. He's very yeah. passionate about his beliefs. So you gotta, you gotta love him for that. Yeah. But yeah. It's true. I mean, I'm Jewish and my, we're lactose intolerant too. I mean, I was allergic to milk and still forced to drink it as a kid because it was supposed to be good for us, you know? Yeah. And you know, the, the things that I will point out in terms of racism, as far as the, the, the food is involved, I know, 
one, uh, a lot of unhealthy foods are marketed to people of color. Okay. So there's a disproportionate amount of marketing for unhealthy foods towards piece of people of color. So for me, you know, especially when you look at uh, the life expectancies for people of color, specifically African-Americans is lower. Uh, there's also higher complications, higher rates of high blood pressure, stroke, diabetes, obesity in the African-American community. So when you look at those disease outcomes and you see that foods that lead to those disease outcomes are specifically marketed to the population of people that have uh, higher rates of these bad outcomes, like that's that's a problem. OK. And, you know, whether or not you want to apply the word, uh, the word racism to it, I do feel like as a country, uh, we could think about how we can change our institutions to, to make this more equitable so people have equal access to living healthier lives. Um, and, you know, does milk, the, the problem with, with calling milk racism is, uh, you know, ultimately, like, yes, people are lactose intolerance, you know, for the most part. And then there are some cancers that dairy has been linked to prostate cancer uh, and and uh, and also maybe even breast cancer, which, you know, again, has disproportionate uh, rates in different communities. Uh, and I think if you focus the conversation there and say, like, look, we're recommending stuff that potentially can increase risk of cancer in certain communities that already have higher risk of cancer then, you, you know, that makes more sense to me. Um, but, you know, just calling it racist, I, I feel like we have to really get into the nuances and specific in the details to have that conversation. Yeah, <laughs> you're, just, you're so diplomatic. And people like Stephanie keeps saying, does Dr. McDonald have a podcast? I love his voice. So I think you're going to have to start one. And Mary Jo says, I wish you lived in her neighborhood. Well, you can live in his South Side, South Side of Chicago. That's where I was born and raised. Yep. So, you know, one of the things I, and again, please, if you've said this, I apologize because I'm also monitoring the chat while you're giving your presentation. But did you mention anything about salt and cancer? Because I believe I heard, I think it was from Dr. Furman that salt can actually cause lesions in the GI tract that can sometimes turn to cancer. Um, you know, that's not something that I'm familiar with. Uh, I mean, you'd probably have to eat a lot of salt. Um, so salt, you know, traditionally, we really focus on salt as far as high blood pressure. Um, but salt causing lesions in the gastrointestinal tract. I mean, that's not exactly what, what, what we see. So what can cause lesions in the gastrointestinal tract would be H. pylori. So H. pylori is a uh, bacteria uh, and H. pylori is a bacteria that lives in, in the stomach. And it's one of the one, number one reasons uh, that people get stomach cancer. Um, so that's, definitely something that uh, I see. And for people who have family histories of stomach cancer, it's not unreasonable to get checked for H. pylori because, you know, your family history may not necessarily be something that's based upon genetics. It just so happens you live in a household where everybody had H. pylori. Uh, and that's a bacteria that could easily be eradicated. Um, now, salt in general, uh, what Dr. Furman may have uh, been in, uh, referring to, if we prepare foods uh, that are salted, uh, as a preservative, uh, which, you know, for most people, most people aren't doing that much this more, but uh, anymore, but salted foods as a preservative uh, can definitely increase the risk of stomach cancer. Yeah, okay. That's I Googled it and that's exactly right. It's not so much the salt shaker, but you're, you're right. Exactly right. Right. But the, the salted foods, I mean, we're not doing as much as what we used to. Okay. So this, this is data that happened before people has in, in those studies, there was an association with salted foods uh, and cancer, specifically stomach cancer. 
Great, thank you. In the slide presentation, you showed the packaging. I don't know if I'm going to pronounce that right. It's PHT, what's that word? Uh, phthalates. 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 Okay. Yeah. So people are asking, how will they know if it's in their packaging or not? That is a good question. Um, I don't think there's any easy way to, to know that, uh, but that is a good question. And, and I feel like, you know, these are, these are something that we, we should really call our politicians to task on. Because uh, if this is a public health concern that we have, then some of that should be labeled like, you know, similar to there's a push for, you know, labeling things as BPA free. Uh, I should be aware of, you know, whether or not I'm consuming phthalates and I would like to see more phthalate free packaging. Um, so I think in general, if things are kind of, you know, wrapped in paper that just looks like regular paper, hasn't been treated with anything, it's not shiny, you know, you're probably OK. So I, I know there's a lot of different um, restaurants who are using recycled materials to to wrap their food in. I, I think that's a step in the right direction. Um, if something is, you know, obviously if you're storing stuff at home in glass, you're probably not exposing yourself to any phthalates, but I would be careful with stuff that's wrapped in plastic or paper that's been treated. Uh, and even some of the foil where it's foil on the outside, but on the inside paper, like there's, you know, something going on in there, um, that potentially could have some phthalates. All right. Well, thanks. Okay. So how, when, when can we expect the podcast? People uh, just love you and they say you just so yeah, they just you kind of got like a smooth voice, you know, very easy to listen to. Yeah, you know, I, I should get back into it. So uh, me and my friends, we uh, started a podcast right before the pandemic started. We we're like, yeah, let's do this podcast. And uh, one of my buddies is a stand up comedian. Uh, he would come in from out of town and come to Chicago. And, and, and every month we do our podcast. Then the pandemic started and it was just like, uh, we're not doing it anymore. Um, I should get back into it. So the name of the podcast was trying to live podcast. It's on, uh, it's on iTunes and Spotify and stuff like that. But we literally only did a couple episodes and the episode, they were so good. We actually had, uh, uh, my buddy GLC. So GLC is a rapper here in Chicago. He's a vegan rapper. Um, he's a plant-based rapper. Uh, he, uh, it was on Kanye, a couple Kanye West albums and stuff like that. So, you know, relatively well-known person. And he talked about why he's a vegetarian. And that whole episode is amazing. Uh, I just found it. I'm going to put it in the show notes. There's three episodes. I didn't even know you. Well, you already started. So all you got to do is just do some episodes. Yeah, I need to go ahead and do it. It's just, uh, you know, it's so busy being a physician and, you know, all the other stuff that I'm doing. Uh, editing the podcast. It wasn't recording podcasts. It was really the editing that made it a little bit tedious. Guess what? Outsource it. I need to outsource it. And I was the person doing everything. Yeah, well, you is... can't do everything. You already got three kids. You got a wife. You got a big practice. You're triple board certified, soon to be quadruple. You're always active on, on Instagram. So I think you can outsource this one thing. That's a good point. Yeah, absolutely. So here, oh, first I want to thank Violet Rodriguez for her super chat donation. And here is a question from Nikki. Does Dr. McDonald recommend that someone who eats a plant-based diet also get a colonoscopy at 50? Yes. And actually uh, the newer recommendation today is 45. So yes, the plant-based diet can uh, offer some protection, but you really want to make sure you don't have any polyps. And I would recommend doing everything you can to decrease the risk of developing colon cancer. And a colonoscopy 
you know, simple enough. Um, it, it should be part of whatever thought process you have in mind in terms of decreasing that risk of colon cancer. Because colon cancer is serious. I mean, it's out there. It happens. And, you, you know, what you don't want to do uh, is just not do everything you can to avoid it because, you know, it, it, colon cancer can be life threatening, especially if it's if caught late. Uh, but also even if people catch it, you know, you may require a surgery or something where now you have an ostomy bag, uh, for a period of time. And, you know, having an ostomy bag is not the worst thing in the world, but it definitely can be very body altering. And a lot of people have, uh, have some issues with adjusting, uh, to their new body appearance to some degree or their new body image. Um, so I tell all the vegans uh, and vegetarians, like still get your colonoscopy. <laughs> Yeah, I, the saddest thing, I, I met somebody at True North, 29 years old, that had his colon removed because I think he might have had ulcerative colitis and like he just, nobody ever told him there was another way. And that like, it's, I've known a lot of people with those bags and they're, I mean, they're life-saving, but they're, they're not fun. Let's put it that way. It is, uh, it, I mean, it, it was just an extra set of challenges. Yep. So I, I don't know if this technology has already been developed, but I recently had a GI doctor from San Diego who I met uh, when I was speaking at Rancho La Puerta. And, and he said that, because you know, some people just won't get colonoscopies for whatever reason, but they're like, like you can swallow a camera and the doctor can watch the footage. Is, is, do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. So, uh, I mean, there's video capsules. Uh, I do a lot of the video capsules at the University of Chicago, and there is a video capsule that's uh, made for the colon. But, you know, it's not as effective as a uh, as a colonoscopy because we don't really have control over uh, the video capsule in terms of what it's looking like, looking at. Um, and most of the video capsules are really made to image the small bowel and a small intestine is just not a, a place where you typically find a lot of cancers. Um, so you, you can get small bowel cancer, but that's ex exceedingly rare. Um, and it's very fascinating as to why, you know, we see a whole bunch of colon cancer and why we see uh, less small bowel cancer. And, you know, some of it goes down, uh, some of it goes back to actual physiology and, and science. Okay. So what they found was the cells in the small intestine um, have more, uh, what's known as P53. Okay. So P53 is a protein that suppresses tumors. Okay. Uh, so the cells in the small intestine have more P53, which protects them against cancer. Um, and, and what P53 also does, it encourages your cells to, if there's any DNA damage, uh, the cells can identify that their damage, their DNA is damaged and commit suicide. Uh, so we call that apoptosis. Okay. So there's more apoptosis going on in the, the small intestine than there is in the colon. Now, why is that? Okay. So in the small intestine, you know, you typically don't have a lot of food just hanging out in the small intestine. Uh, the small intestine is moving so rapidly. Most food just kind of moves through it uh, without sitting uh, for a long period of time to come in contact with uh, the line in the small intestine. Like, you know, there's a lot of absorption. But again, you just don't have food sitting there for extended periods of time. The colon is very different. OK, so the colon is where all our waste goes. And for some people, especially if you're constipated, you know, stool can sit in your colon for a long period of time. Uh, but the stool, there's a lot of carcinogens within that stool. OK, so those carcinogens are brushing up against the lining of the colon and the lining of the colon, since it's uh, encountering a lot of uh, carcinogens, those cells are, are rapidly turning over. OK, 
And every time those cells multiply, the risk for a mutation increases. Okay. And there's actually less P53 in the colon compared to the small intestine. Uh, so the colon is a little bit more tolerant of having uh, DNA mutations than the small bowel is. And because the colon can allow more mutations to accumulate, it is one of the reasons why we see more polyps in the large intestine, the colon, than we do in the small intestine. And a lot of it has to do with this difference in P53. And P53 is actually one of the, the targets that when they're muted, when P53 is mutated and it doesn't work well, that is one of the, we call that a hit and that increases the risk for developing cancer. Um, so I got a, a little bit nerdy and in, in, in detailed with that. Um, it's fascinating though. It is fascinating. Do you ever anticipate I mean, I know you can't predict the future, at least I don't think you can, but there may be a time where, even though we don't know what it is yet, but there may be something that is not as invasive as a colonoscopy that might be just as effective because there is a group of people, even people watching that are never going to get a colonoscopy. Did you? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, there probably will be something. And, and for people who don't want to get colonoscopy, and that's fine. I, I would recommend doing Cologar testing, which is a, uh, a test that can identify polyps. And it's pretty good. I mean, it's, it picks up 90% of uh, large polyps, doesn't pick up the smaller ones. Uh, the only caveat is if, the, if that test is positive, then someone has to remove the polyps and you would need a colonoscopy for that. So we don't have any way of removing polyps right now outside of a colonoscopy. So that's, you know, that's just is what it is. And even the pill, the pill doesn't remove any polyps. It just identifies polyps. And then someone says you need a colonoscopy. So a lot of the stuff that we have is kind of an extra step before a colonoscopy. Now, at some point in the future, and then again, a lot of people don't like colonoscopy because the bowel preparation sucks. Okay. It tastes terrible. So the procedure by itself, you know, most people are just asleep. I mean, it's, you really don't feel anything. And even if you don't want to be asleep, I do a whole bunch of colonoscopies with people who choose to be awake and I can do a colonoscopy, somebody wide awake and fine. So like, I would say 99% of uh, the colonoscopies that I do with someone wide awake, they have no pain. And they're just like, this is what, the, this is a big deal. Like, you know, simple, but the bowel preparation is tough. So you're drinking a whole bunch of liquid that tastes terrible, gives you diarrhea. So I, you know, I get it. Uh, for people who don't, who really struggle with the bowel preparation, there's a lot of preparations out there. Uh, so you can ask your doctor about something easier, uh, where it's just not as much. I mean, most people are using Go Lightly. Go Lightly is the most commonly prescribed bowel pre preparation, but it's also the most difficult. Um, and and you know, unfortunately, it's the one that insurance companies pretty much cover. Um, there's a shortage of go lightly right now because, uh, you know, they're actually putting polyethylene glycol, which is the main ingredient in go lightly. It is also in the vaccine for COVID. Uh, so I think some of that polyethylene glycol is going to the vaccines. Um, and now it's affecting uh, how much polyethylene glycol is available for, for go lightly and colonoscopies. But nonetheless, there's other stuff out there that's easier to take. Um, and in the future, we will probably have something that's more akin to video games. Um, so it'll probably be a capsule or some sort of small device that, you know, I can, a patient can ingest or, you know, we can insert it, uh, you know, similar to a colonoscopy. And then we can just navigate the colon and small bowel, look for polyps, find them and sniff about them ourselves uh, without actually, you know, having to do exactly what we do for a colonoscopy. But whatever technology exists, it's going to have to have the ability to actually uh, remove a polyp as opposed to just saying, hey, there's a polyp.
Right. And, and the thing is, is like most of this can be prevented if people would start eating fiber. I mean, I, I, I was vegan eating no fiber. If it's possible, that was me for, you know, till I was 43. So you can be vegan without eating vegetables. And that's how I got all those polyps. So, yeah, which was interesting because mine went away and nobody believed me that, it, that I changed my diet. And, you know, within six months, they were gone just from being like really, really clean. Like the GI doctor th- thought I had surgery somewhere. So I don't know. Interesting. Yeah. Well, you know, did you, did you, I don't know. You're, you're a lot younger than me, but in the sixties, I think it was, there was a movie with Raquel Welch called fantastic voyage where they shrunk <laughs> this team down into microscopic levels to like fix things in the human body. It would be kind of cool if like, I don't, like you say, we could adjust something that's just like scrubbing bubbles. It's just going to like clean our colon, get rid of the polyps, you know, something like that. I mean, with new technology, like who knows, uh, there's definitely advancing technology. And it's funny. So I, I definitely am aware of that movie. And in the 80s, when I was younger, there was a similar movie, uh, Inner Space. And I think Inner Space had the comedian Martin Short. Uh, and now that now that movie's like super duper old. And everyone's like, yeah, I talked to the medical students about Inner Space. And all the medical students are like 21. They're like, this came out in 1980 something. Oh, my God, it's so old. And I'm like, what? <laughs> That's hilarious. Lissa says, is there a way to prep the colon for a colonoscopy that does not harm one's microbiome? So very fascinating question. I would say that's a woke question. Okay. So whoever asked that, that's you're, you're woke. Like you've done some research. I like it. Uh, I love woke questions. So there was a study that looked at the impact of bowel preparations on the microbiome. Okay. So we know that antibiotics can definitely impact the microbiome. And, and you would think a, a bowel preparation can impact the microbiome and it, and it does, but the impact is short lived. Okay. So what they did was they gave people uh, go lightly, uh, which is one of the commonly used medications to prepare someone for a colonoscopy. Uh, the way it works, you drink a gallon of liquid that gives you diarrhea and you have a whole bunch of bowel movements. And within those bowel movements, it's not just stool. It's also part of your microbiome. But what they found was, um, you know, after about 30 days, uh, the microbiome goes back to normal. Uh, so it goes back to exactly the way it was uh, after the bowel preparation. But you do have a brief period in time in which uh, the microbiome may be impacted uh, because you're physically just flushing out a lot of bacteria. So, you know, for me, uh, I tell people, again, the power of food when it comes to the microbiome, once you get on a healthier diet, your microbiome can switch into a healthier uh, microbiome within days, you know, t- typically less than a week. Uh, so for someone who's having a colonoscopy, who has a imp- concern about the impact of the colonoscopy on its microbiome, uh, especially if their, their diet was unhealthy to begin with, uh, after the colonoscopy, you know, since we have changed the microbiome and eliminated some of the bacteria, that would be a great opportunity to get on a healthier diet. So I've seen a lot of people who actually uh, started their plant-based diet after having a colonoscopy, uh, just to make that, uh, just to facilitate the switch from a unhealthy combination of bacteria that's typically associated with the standard American diet to one that's healthier and more diverse that's associated with uh, more of a varied plant-based diet. Okay. So that colonoscopy in of itself may, uh, at least that cleanse may in of itself help with that transition. And that's actually one of the studies that uh, I'm in the process of doing. So I'm working with uh, Dr. Gene Chang, who's one of our uh, microbiome researchers at the University of Chicago. 
And we're actively putting together a study to, you know, look at this effect, uh, not only look at the impact that the bowel preparation may have on the, the colon, uh, the, specifically the microbiome, but really the impact that dietary change has afterwards. Okay. Uh, so what we're trying to do is uh, for our patients who are having colonoscopies, like I want to have people get a colonoscopy and do the bowel preparation and then uh, get on a plant-based diet. And we follow them for a little bit and see what their microbiome uh, change, change looks like. But then we'll have similar people not do that and just go on, you know, the standard American diet that has all the foods that uh, I listed in this uh, presentation. And then we can compare and contrast what the microbiomes look like after the bowel preparation to really get an idea of not only what the bowel preparation is doing, but what the foods are doing. It'd be interesting if people could see some of them, how dirty their colon was, you know? Uh, yeah, I mean... A dirty colon is a sad place. <laughs> <laughs> you had mentioned earlier about H. pylori, and there were a couple of questions. I think it's a bacteria. What is it? How do we know if we have it? What does it do to us if we do have it? Yeah, good question. H. pylori, you know, H. pylori is scary stuff. So this is a bacteria that lives in our stomach. It lives within stomach, stomach acid. I mean, like the stomach is an environment that literally melts food. Uh, like if I shrunk down to, you know, uh, Martin Sheen size or whatever in one of those movies and just hop in somebody's stomach, like I would be, I would melt away with, from stomach acid. Uh, the same way, the same thing that happens to all the food that we eat. Uh, but for H. pylori, this bacteria is um, strong enough to live in an acidic environment. And it's one of the reasons why we actually have to give people multiple antibiotics to get rid of it. And even still, we have to confirm that the antibiotics were effective in getting rid of it. So oftentimes people are doing, you know, two to three, maybe even four antibiotics at a time just to treat this one bacteria. Uh, so how do people get it? I mean, it's passed on. Um, uh, through ingestion. Uh, so you probably have ate some food or something that has it, or, you know, somebody who had it, who was preparing food, uh, may have prepared some food in such a way where you got exposed to it. And most people don't know they have it. Okay. Uh, so most people have no idea they have H pylori and, and they could have had it for years. Um, so the symptoms that cause us to look for H pylori would include uh, abdominal pain, uh, would be one of the major symptoms. Uh, sometimes we can see B12 deficiency. Uh, so the bacteria can af affect the way our stomach processes B12. And as a result, uh, people can develop B12 deficiency. So for me being interested in, in nutrition, I mean, obviously I see a lot of patients who are plant-based and I'm kind of following uh, B12 levels for some of my plant-based patients. Um, but in general, you know, I see a lot of folks who have B12 deficiency and it's not because they're vegetarian. It's because they may actually have um, uh, H. pylori. Um, so I've definitely identified a lot of H. pylori because of B12 deficiency. But um, most of the times, you know, when we see somebody who has ulcers, so if we do an upper endoscopy camera test where we look inside someone's stomach and we see a lot of ulcers, that can be uh, a sign that they may have H. pylori. And that's when we take biopsies to see H. pylori. So one way to diagnose H. pylori is through biopsy. Um, there's other ways uh, that aren't as invasive. Uh, so there's a stool test for H. pylori. And then there's also a breath test for H. pylori. Now, there is a blood test. A blood test has kind of fallen out of favor. But for someone who's never been diagnosed with H. pylori, uh, the blood test is also a reasonable option.
Nice. I got H. pylori in Japan when I was in my 30s. It's no fun, I can tell you. And yeah, Gina's so, saying we should maybe make a T-shirt. A dirty colon is a bad place. <laughs> eat more fiber. Or maybe is a bad place to be. Eat more fiber. You know me in T-shirts, and you can. I can make you anything you want. Apron, T-shirt. Uh, so G Gabriella lives in the UK. She's 51. She's been on this plan for about two years. She says in her country it's not the same. Where they they push for it. So should she try to get one privately? Is it, it's not the same where they push for colonoscopy? It sounds like that. She's saying that because she's, uh, Gabriella, you're watching. I see, correct me if I'm wrong, but she's 51 and she hasn't had one because she says in the UK, it's not so like, it's, I guess it's different. They're not making people get them to the degree they are here. And she's wondering if she should just contract privately to try to get one. Yeah, uh, so that's tough. I don't know what the European guidelines are offhand. So those are guidelines that I have not looked at, I'm, but I'm sure they have uh, cancer guidelines, colon cancer uh, screening guidelines. So if I were her, and, and you know, honestly, not all physicians are aware of their guidelines. Um, so that's you, you know that's true. So the first thing I would do if I was her, I would uh, actually Google uh, European colon cancer guidelines. Uh, and see what pops up, um, because what she's being told may not actually be what's truly recommended. And she just happens to have a physician who may not necessarily be aware of those guidelines. Um, and if the guidelines are recommending that she should have colon cancer screening, I would uh, pursue the form of colon cancer screening that's recommended. Um, so and that's also paid for. So if she, you know, wants to contract with somebody else, you know, she has to have the financial resources to do so. Uh, so I, I think in general, in the United States, if you're here in the United States at the age of 51, we would recommend colonoscopy. Uh, if you have a family history of colon cancer, regardless of those guidelines, I would say you should probably get a colonoscopy. Um, but, you know, ultimately, I would start looking at what the European societies are recommending and then have a more informed conversation with your primary care doctor. Right. Just, I hope, don't mean to embarrass you by Violet, Violet's comment. She's the one that made the super, super chat donation. What a handsome, intelligent man. <laughs> <laughs> You're so humble. Okay. He could handle the ones about his voice, but that's anyway. So, so uh, Naja is asking, are colonics bad? I know that Dr. Clapper is not a fan of them. You know, I am not a fan because um, they're not well studied. Um, and honestly, we don't fully know what the impact of the colonics are on the microbiome. And I say that they probably do have an impact. So if I know that my go lightly, the liquid that my patients drink for colon cleanse that goes through your mouth and then, you know, you poop out all the liquid, if that can impact your microbiome, surely uh, irrigating all the bacteria that uh, live in your colon uh, through a colonic can definitely have an impact. And especially if you're doing it over and over again. So in general, we know that having a diverse population of bacteria in our colon uh, is associated with a healthy gut or a healthier, a healthier microbiome. Okay. So diversity when it comes to bacteria in our colon is good. I mean, it really is good. And I fear that colonics, although they may make people feel like they're less full and they may, you know, eliminate some of the stool in the colon, but it also is going to eliminate some of the bacteria. And I don't know what the long-term impact of that is. And I fear that it may not necessarily be that one that's, 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 that's negative. I fear it may be, it may be, it, it may be negative. I don't know. Um, but in general, I feel like if you're eating a diet that's rich in fiber 
that's you know rich in plant-based products you shouldn't really need to clean your colon uh and the colon again is a place that's never going to be clean like you're never going to get rid of all the bacteria that's down there uh and you shouldn't uh so the whole idea of colon cleanses and stuff like that is really it's just not true it's kind of based upon marketing um it's like it, I, you know i just i don't get it but i am not a fan and then in general there are um there are a variety of different ways people are cleaning the the tools they use for colonics. Okay. And they're not all the same. Okay. So with our colonoscopies, you know, in the United States, I can't speak on other countries. There are rigorous standards that we have to use and follow to clean our colonoscopies. Cause you know, what you don't want is a situation people have a colonoscopy and then, you know, the scope goes to somebody else. And next thing you know, they're getting infections and whatnot like that. That can't happen. That would just destroy the field of gastroenterology if that was the case. So as a result, you know, the scopes uh, are clean, you know, meticulously, um, meticulously uh, before they're used in a person. Um, and that's, you know, really driven by the FDA. Now, is that same, is the FDA monitoring how well um, people at colonic places are cleaning their instruments? They're not. Um, so you definitely can get, you know, potentially, you know, some serious uh, infections uh, if those instruments are not cleaned properly. And then also with a colonoscopy, I can see what's going on inside of someone. Okay. So if I'm inserting too much water or using too much carbon dioxide, I can see the impact that it's having on the colon. Whereas a colonic, there's no visual component. Okay. So, you know, if someone can put too much water in there and they can put you at risk for perforation. Uh, and there's no way for the person doing the clock to even recognize that they're putting too much water until you start having pain. And at that point, you know, you may already have perforated. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And my mom was the kind that would always clean the house before the cleaning lady came. So maybe some people want to clean their bowel before you go there. Just <laughs> So you don't need a colonic before a colonoscopy, know, but you do need a, a bowel preparation. But, you know, you, you made me think of it when you were talking about diversity. I, I, you know, that's another T-shirt, maybe embrace diversity, eat more plants. I don't know if everyone would get that, though. You know, <laughs> we, Adele says we, how so somebody can actually develop a perforated bowel from that procedure. That's that's important. How else can somebody get a perforated bowel? She wonders. Uh, so cancers, uh, can definitely cause a bowel obstruction that can lead to a perforation. Uh, colonoscopies, uh, can be associated with perforation, especially if, uh, you're having a colonoscopy with someone who does not routinely do colonoscopy. So for folks who are going to have colonoscopy, I do recommend that you go, you know, see someone who actually is comfortable doing colonoscopies and does a, a decent amount of colonoscopy as opposed to, you know, there's, you know, some doctors who don't routinely do it, but they feel like they know how to do it. So they'll, they'll do it, but they, they may not necessarily be a gastroenterologist. Uh, so that definitely can carry the risk of perforation. I've never seen a perforation in uh, any of my patients, but, you know, it's something that every time I can send someone for the procedure, I'd bring up as a possibility. Um, but the rates are extremely low, uh, even with colonoscopy. So we say, think maybe like one in 10,000, one in 15,000 uh, colonoscopies can, can be associated with perforation. Um, other than that, um, ischemic colitis. Um, so that's where um, blood flow to parts of the colon can be compromised for a lot of different reasons. And people can develop an ulcer there uh, that can lead to perforation. Uh, and some people, even severe constipation can do it. Um, so people can develop a, a fecal impaction 
which can uh, just from the stool pressing down on the wall of the colon for so long uh, can erode uh, through the wall of the colon and cause a, a pressure ulcer, ulcer, ulcer. We call that a stercoral ulcer and that can perforate um, diverticular disease. Uh, so again, these are all conditions that you can get from having a low fiber diet. Okay. So diverticular disease, if you develop diverticulitis, and we know that 10 to 20% of people who have diverticular disease can develop diverticulitis, which is inflammation of the little pockets. We call those diverticuli. Um, those can perforate and cause a hole and the perforation. I mean, a hole in your colon is a serious issue. Like that is a life-threatening issue. Um, so that, that's something that's not taken lightly. And it's one of the reasons why sometimes with diverticular disease, people end up with emergent surgeries. Uh, but how do you prevent that from happening? Eat more fruits and vegetables, whole grains. Absolutely. Vince says he works in the GI department. He put NW, I'm guessing that's Northwestern. And Northwestern. How he, yeah, how he could get an autographed copy of your book. Um, yeah, we can. Um, that's easy. I don't know. Maybe we can get Vince's contact info or email address and I can I can reach out to Vince separately. So shout out to Northwestern. I was a Northwestern medical student, Northwestern resident. And Vince, uh, Terry Barrett, who used to be the chief of GI, he was one of my main mentors uh, when I was at Northwestern. And to this day, I'm still good, good, good friends with Panofino and uh, Dusty Carlson. Uh, who else? Uh, Chris Moore, who's a hepatologist. Chris Moore, who's the, the head of uh, the Transplant Hepatology Fellowship at Northwestern. He's one of my co-fellows at Rush. So, uh, you know, shout out to Northwestern. My buddy, my buddy Adam Stein. Uh, Dr. Adam Stein, who uh, does all their nutrition at Northwestern, he did our nutrition fellowship at uh, University of Chicago. So uh, I'm, I'm close friends with a lot of the, the Northwestern doctors. Nice. Aaron Brenner. Introduce me to some of them for the next summit. I just love all of your recommendations. This is great. So we're connecting people that live in the same city. That's amazing. Well, next time you come on, I hope um, we'll do a cooking demo because you also are a trained chef. You went to culinary school and maybe even an iron chef against our mutual friend, Dr. Baxter Montgomery. I think that would be really fun. Okay. I look forward to it. Yeah. And I, I'm so happy you told me about your podcast. I didn't know about it. I'm, I'm going to subscribe and I'm listening to the three episodes and, and I hope for more. Okay. Sounds good. Oh my God. It's so great seeing you again, Dr. McDonald. Thank you so much. Chef AJ, always a pleasure. Oh my God. And thanks all of you for watching another episode of Chef AJ Live. We have a bonus show in two hours at 2.30 PM today. We have Dr. Jen Hawk and Dr. Doug Lyle who are going to answer all your questions. Thanks again, Dr. McDonald. Be well. <laughs>